My daddy left when I was a kid so I can play this boy whose daddy sucks. You still listening. This is our final transmission. We're here. We're here. How you doing, Sammy? Oh boy, absolutely killing it over here. How are you? What's the best word to describe how I feel right now? Thoroughly shagged. I am knackered. <laughs> are you a tad on the snoozy side? I'm a, what we would call in this household, a snoozy Susan. <laughs> Not a sleepy bean? No. It's it's a snoozy Susan or a, sno- or, or a sleepy Snoopy. That's <laughs> Sleepy Snoopy is nice. That's, that's a little insight into what goes on in this house. What would you uh, What would you do to sleep right now? What would you give? Uh, I would cover myself in gasoline and set myself and everyone I've ever loved on fire. What a coincidence! <laughs> well, what's 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 the coincidence? Well, oh, yeah, it sounds like yeah, <laughs> the, the instigating incident of today's movie. Dream Warriors. Oh, wait, no, sorry. <laughs> Bad <laughs> Dreams. The movie Bad Dreams, 1988's dream-based opus, Bad Dreams. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for this film. Obviously, yeah. we'll get into it hard and deep in a moment. But, like, mm. I'm, uh, I'm not sure it quite landed with me this time as it did when, it, when, I, when I first saw it in my teens or when I last watched it in my... Mid-twenties. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the first time you saw this movie, how you came across it, and what the heck and the hootenanny it's all about. I mean, it was just one of those great VHS covers in the rental shop. It was like gnarly burnt Richard Lynch face. Mm. There's a knife on there. Um, and it just looked gnarly as fuck. And it's called Bad Dreams, and I love Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. So, like, it, it looked like a winner to me. And it was a winner. I don't know, maybe I was 15, 14. Mm-hmm. Like it, it wasn't crazy early in my horror film watching career. No, crazy early for you would have been three years old. Uh, whereas crazy <laughs> early for me would have been about 14. Yeah, fair. Why don't I give us a quick synopsis? Then we'll go for a cup of tea. And then we'll mm. come back and chat this fucker. Is it okay if I drink beer instead? Because I've already started and I don't want to switch. Okay. I'll okay, allow that. Good. <laughs> so Bad Dreams, 1988, directed by Andrew Fleming, who's most famous for The Craft. But yeah, also directorial directed... debut, am I right? Yeah, he was 24 when he made this movie. That's absolutely um, unforgivably young to be directing movies. Yeah. What were you doing at 24, Sam? Not fucking directing even a mediocre horror movie. I couldn't fucking direct myself to the kitchen to make a sandwich when I was 24. I was fucking useless. Andrew Fleming also directed a film that I really, really love, which mm. is uh, which is called Dick. Have you seen have you seen that? No. It's So it's Kirsten Dunst and oh, another girl whose name I can't remember who's in Dawson's Creek. Mm. And it's the 70s. And they go on a trip to the White House. And they sort of fall in love with Richard Nixon. Okay. And they and they stumble into the room where they're sort of like um, shredding all of like the Watergate papers, and and, and like their deep throat, like it's a whole thing. Like they're, it's great. It's really is it a comedy? Good. Sounds like yeah. a comedy. Yeah. Okay. Is it Katie Holmes from Dawson's? No, 
It's not Chaos, it's the blonde one. I always get her name wrong because I think she looks like four other actresses, so I'm not yeah. going to guess. But yeah, no, it's great. And he directed that. He directed like a bunch of comedy TV later as well. Am I right in thinking that the the same director and cinematographer worked on this as The Craft? Yeah. Same pair. Okay, great. Yeah. That explains a ting or two. Carry on. My apologies. Yeah, so obviously he's most most known for The Craft. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll talk about The Craft a little bit. We'll sure. sneak some craft in. But here, go, here goes, right, synopsis. Mm-hmm. Cynthia is a small child who is part of a weird mass suicide sex cult. Sex, eh? Ooh. I mean, I think so. And the cult, led by Harris, all kill themselves by setting themselves on fire. But in some sort of freak explosion based on the fire, Cynthia survives. Is blown clear of the fire by an explosion. Not quite sure how that works. But, you know, we're not the Mythbusters, Sam. So who cares? We just take it, take it as it is. Yeah. And she falls into a coma for 13 years. And when she wakes up, she is Jennifer Rubin from Dream Warriors. Again. And then so when she wakes up, she sees visions of this um, cult leader uh, who's trying to sort of goad her into committing suicide. And when she says no, the the other friends that she has in this mental institution begin dying in unusual ways. Has Harris, the cult leader, come back? And is he exacting his revenge? Or is there something more devious afoot? That's a very good synopsis, Jamie. He left no stone unturned. And yet, that's the, the crux and the thrust. Whoa! Holy shit! I guess that's why they call it Phantom Power. Holy crap, I don't know about you, Jamie, when it comes to influential acoustic records affiliated with the punk rock genre, there are none finer, in my opinion, than the first Sundowner record, uh, which was released on Red Scare Industries many, many moons ago. Are you a Sundowner fan? I've, I've dabbled. I've dabbled in the old Sundownies. You've had a dibble and a dabble? Who can say they, they love music? Uh, that doesn't love 4152 from 2007 it was an album that changed the course and the direction of my tiny little life on this earth and chris mccoggan we thank you very much for that beautiful record good record good guy good label uh we love sundown we love chris we love red scare we love 20 years of punk rock out of the beating heart of chicago and uh with that let's go back to the show a pretty good premise if you ask me we've already made some allusions to dream warriors Straight out the gate, right off the bat, which one do you like more? Bad Dreams or Dream Warriors? A Freddy Krueger franchise romp. I mean, I love Dream Warriors, but it is mm. goofy trash. Yeah. I think the world was ready for a serious Nightmare on Elm Street film mm-hmm. again. And that's what that's what Bad Dreams, that's the, the hole that Bad Dreams was filling. Mm. It's just much more gruesome. It feels like it's more... More of a real film. I think it does almost everything Dream Warriors tries to do 50% better, mm. in my opinion. If we're comparing the two, which I wasn't really too keen to do until I read some uh, some critical voices from around the time, and it seems like people were very quick to lump these together, not just because Jennifer Rubin is in both, 
and not just because we have a burnt antagonist coming from a you know alternate plane of existence um not just because we have a, a mental institute setting full of teenagers and, and and younger people but i guess for other reasons as well in you know pacing writing etc etc but i you know i don't see as tight a correlation there as as maybe some of the critics did and i don't think it's necessarily that fair a comparison what do you think i mean i remembered a lot more dreams a lot, a lot more dream based stuff than mm. actually how it plays out in the movie sure like it's more like they're all in a, like a waking nightmare as a re- as a result of like sedative drugs yeah rather than if you fall asleep harris or freddy or mm. Whoever is going to come and get you, like it doesn't, it doesn't play out like that at all. And I, besides the fact that it's a, a burnt antagonist and it's called Bad Dreams, and it's got Jennifer Rubin in it, I'm not seeing loads of correlation really. Mm. I think, like, it, it might just be the 35 years of distance between now and this movie and Nightmare on Elm Street, but we've seen Nightmare on Elm Street's best ideas picked apart for years and years and years. Mm. And I think this brings some interesting stuff to the table. Like I say, I think we were ready for a more serious take on Nightmare on Elm Street. I think the the hippie sex cult mass suicide angle is an interesting way of like upping the ante. Definitely. I think the fact that Harris looks like he's actually a real guy that's been set on fire. The, the, those makeup effects are, are horrible. Mm-hmm. I think that really, like, I never really bought Freddy Krueger as, like, a guy that had been burnt. He's just a guy with a weird face. Yeah, until you kind of find out, well, I guess you find out pretty early, but I think part of what makes Freddy scary is his appearance, you know, mm. alongside all his crazy fucking abilities to kill you in your dreams. <laughs> I think maybe what makes Richard Lynch menacing in a completely different way in this movie is it kind of goes beyond the the burnt makeup effects etc etc is a kind of menacing presence generally less of a kind of nasty gross vulgar violent kind of presence if we're comparing to freddy and more of a kind of menacing you know unpredictable kind of leering appearing and disappearing kind of ghoulish ghostly kind of presence richard lynch is probably one of my main criticisms of this film Ooh, interesting i mean i think he's great in the present day content. But I just don't buy him as a cult leader. He's too terrifying. Really? Like you wouldn't <laughs> so. you wouldn't you wouldn't join a sex cult <laughs> with that guy. Do you know what I mean? Like he is mm, I don't know. Like I feel like he doesn't have the charisma. He doesn't have the charm. I don't I I, I don't see people following him. Mm. I don't see people burning themselves for him. I don't know, man. I think when you look at kind of classic cult leaders, I mean, they're very rarely super attractive, suave. There's always like an edge to them. The, the, I think the persuasiveness comes from a more of a manipulative place than a charismatic place sometimes. And the two are obviously very close in mm. sociopathy and, and psychopathy. But um, I, I bought him pretty much throughout the entire movie and I loved that he had more of a you know a slightly deranged edge like a softly spoken deranged edge as a cult leader than like you said like a smooth talk he's fanatical but he's not over the top he's not preaching this i mean he is preaching but he's doing it in a calm quiet quite understated way yeah i think 
despite the fact that I don't really buy him as a cult leader, I think the character of the cult leader is... I think he is a cult leader that has the courage of his convictions. Mm. Unlike real-life cult leaders, who are mostly all charlatans, that have like a layer of self-awareness and know that they're exploiting people. Like, he pours way more gasoline on himself than anyone else. Than anyone else, yeah. He leads by example, for sure. Yeah. Everyone else gets a little ladle. He gets the fucking, the full bucket. Yeah, he's, he's leading from the front. I, I mean, in terms of, I guess, the connective tissue between the two movies, I think um, I think what's really important to recognise is that this can completely stand on its own two legs. It doesn't owe anything to Dream Warriors, I don't think, necessarily. It's not like uh, we're seeing loads of stuff lifted from it. It's not like The Burning and, and, uh, and Friday the 13th, for example, where there's just so much bleed, it's almost silly. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't have put the two together necessarily if it weren't for the really obvious connection of Jennifer Rubin. And I think we don't have an antagonist in this movie who kills you in your dreams. That's the, the crucial part. This has nothing to do with sleep, really. There's some dream sequences, sure. But I think what's really important is that they're, they're completely separate in terms of the, the sort of unique intellectual property kind of qualities involved. Yeah. And I think what's really clever about this film is that it doesn't put itself forward as being a, a clone of dream warriors or anything like that. It doesn't have, you know, there's not a group of kids banding together in a, in a mental facility to fight a, a dream demon. You know, it's, it's very different in that sense. And I, I think it's a little bit unfair to lump them together. It's just a clever, clever idea. They, they chose the title that was like, they did that on purpose. Mm. Like, I think when you, when you, when you layer the title on top, it does feel a bit more, I don't know, exploitative or mm. wave ridey. I think my notes I wrote bit like Dream Warriors. <laughs> That's as far as I went. I mean, one of the most interesting things about this film for me, since we're on the the topic of Richard Lynch, do you know about Richard Lynch's burning? Yeah, absolutely. So I, mean, I think, like, obviously he had these scars from burning himself alive when he was younger and super high in the 60s he was tripping on lsd in central park yeah and he committed an act of self-immolation he set himself on fire with gasoline and in this movie <laughs> he sets himself on fire with gasoline and burns himself to death i mean that's a pretty astonishing role for a guy who's been through that to take on is it not no absolutely i mean it's 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 brave because obviously mm. when you're in that makeup, you have to look at yourself and this is what you could have looked like. This is what he pretty you... fucking did look like for a, for a little while there. I've seen yeah. some footage of him being interviewed uh, in the process of recovery and he looks horrifically burned. Well, I can, I can believe it. It adds an extra layer in the movie, I think, because it mm. feels like he's he's done this before. He's tried it out. He's like, like he's, he's very visibly like his skin isn't good mm. he looks like he's been burned before it, it almost like adds an extra little layer to the character i get you so in the scenes where he is the cult leader pre-burning he already yeah. looks scarred so you're thinking like oh ah, yeah that that does add some layers yeah for sure uh, initially because i didn't know an enormous amount about richard lynch i knew that i'd seen him in a few things and i liked him and i thought he looked mm. a bit like rick mayo <laughs> and i you know i'm on side for that but 
I guess I thought to myself, ooh, that looks like some bad aging makeup. Like they're, they're trying to make him look older in this scene because we're going to go back in, in time in the next section or whatever. And obviously that didn't happen. And I realized, oh, that's his actual skin. And yeah. then I looked it up and I realized, right. So that's the backstory. You know, this is really fucking next level. I set myself on fire on acid. I know what this is about. This is my material. I mean, that's that's complete like dedication to your craft, right? Or is it just... Desperation for a gig. I don't know. He isn't massively discerning about the roles that he takes. So I've seen from his IMDb. Yeah. But, like, he's good. He's. I mean, we've got some clunkers in there. He's always good. He's always terrifying. He's, like, one of those those actors that, that you got in the 70s and 80s who were just, like, born to play shitheels. Mm. Um, I mean, there's another one in this movie as well. There's Harris Eulin. Yeah. Who, again, like... Just born to play bad guys. I love him. Well, to the point where with Harris Eulin, you're like, have they tried to fake us out and make him a good guy? And then, <laughs> yeah. spoiler alert, they didn't. Have, but, you, um, have you watched Ozark? Slight side note. I watched some of the first season. Harris Eulin comes in in Ozark a little bit later on, and he nice. is, uh, I think it's a career-defining performance in a lot of ways. He's not just a shit-healed. Shit-healed? He's not just a shit heel. He's got uh, like a whole nother trajectory going on there. I've actually mentioned this before on the podcast, but he, he's absolutely superb in Ozark. It's well worth a look. He, um, I watched some like behind the scenes footage of the the them shooting the um, the scene where Bruce Abbott's character is driving over him mm. in that hallucination scene. Yeah, which we will we will talk about that because oh yeah. That's uh, I got I got some thoughts about that, mm-hmm. but um, and he's just like standing around smiling. I've never seen him smile before and like look warm and nice. Yeah, not an evil smile. <laughs> yeah, like he's 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 got a character that he plays in movies, and yep. he is fucking sticking to it. I think what I'm wondering is is Doctor Beresford going to make my list of bad doctors? Uh, because that list is growing with every movie you bring to this podcast, <laughs> Jamie. It's a lot of shitty doctors on our roster. Yeah, well, I guess, like, there's nothing scarier than a shitty doctor, is there? I mean, especially in, in the context of the mental health field, should we say. I mean, yeah. the body horror stuff scares me as well, like a surgeon who's going to stitch my brain into my ball bag or whatever. Yeah, that's terrifying. But a guy who's going to, you know, emotionally manipulate me into <laughs> fucking doing way worse things and setting myself on fire is a real worry. <laughs> They're the ones I want to look out for. Yeah. So Bad Dreams is co-written by Stevie D'Souza, who... Basically, you couldn't put a VHS in the video player in the in the late eighties or early nineties without seeing his fucking name. Yeah, he is absolute ubiquitous eighties film writer man. And you're a fan. I mean, look at the tenure. You can't yeah. you can't go wrong with the movies that he's written: Die Hard, Commando, The Running Man. Like he's done some shit later. Yeah, but like but that's when a he was hell of a run. Yeah, when he was in that sort of peak period in the in the eighties and very early nineties, he was he was killing it. When cocaine was cheap, he was killing it. <laughs> I mean, we've also got. I mean, there's some serious pedigree in this mo- in this movie. Like Andrew Fleming, yes, it's his directorial debut, but he's kind of under James Cameron's wing at this point, I gather, and he's you know taking cues from a, a few other prestigious people in the industry. We've got Gail Ann Hurd, who produced Aliens. 
the Terminator, who later went on to write, I think, Terminator Dark Fate, potentially. Had a huge career. Yeah. Married to... Um, was Roger Corman's assistant for a while. Uh, married to James Cameron, divorced. Married to Brian De Palma, divorced. You know, she's bringing serious Hollywood chops to this little uh, Bad Dreams flick here. What a team. What a team. I guess all it, it was all based on the script. So, like, from what I gather... Andrew Fleming and like some childhood friends have been working on the script for a long time, mm. and they wanted to do something with the with the sort of supernatural slasher genre and flip it on its head a little bit, mm. um, and make it a bit more cerebral and a bit more sort of character based. Mm-hmm. Which I'm not sure if they actually succeed in making it character based in the end. No, I, I would say, uh, you know, if I have any criticisms of it, it's it's a little bit puddle deep when it comes to character stuff which is obviously a bit of a bugbear in mind something i love is a, a character driven horror but I, I think it's written in a really taut way that feels deliberate and feels worked on it doesn't feel knocked out you know in a, a you know boozy drug fueled weekend it feels like they've actually sat down and taken some time over this so it makes a lot of sense to me that you say that a close-knit group of friends wrote over a period of time with a very specific goal because i think it you know it, it feels that way and i think the cinematography, the directing, and the writing are the three biggest strengths of this movie, if you ask me. And that's a pretty <laughs> strong combo, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are some things that aren't great in the writing. Mm. Oh, there's some terrible dialogue. There's some absolutely cheese dick dialogue. Well, I'm thinking more of how Bruce Abbott's character, Doctor Carmen, mm. how he just sort of suddenly falls in love with this. Effectively, thirteen-year-old girl in an adult woman's body. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. It comes out of nowhere. It's basically one line. I didn't know if maybe that was desperation rather than genuine feeling. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that was a a bit of a bizarre sideswipe. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of nits to pick in terms of characters and motivation and and you know the whys of of what what people do in this movie. But uh, thankfully, a lot of that can be explained by lots of characters with borderline personalities, which gives you a lot of room to manoeuvre in terms of erratic behaviour and sort of spurious motivation, etc. I wonder what mental health disorder I need to get in order to fuck in a, in a turbine. <laughs> well, uh, whatever it is, I think you got it, bud, because I wouldn't put it past you. <laughs> I think, yeah, there's there's a lot of fun had here with the 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 darker side of mental health that you you get to indulge in a little bit more in horror movies because it's it's taken with a you know a pinch of salt and it's for entertainment's sake and we're not you know it's not all a statement on you know mental health and best practice and there's some really shitty therapy and bad doctors in this which I love it's something I'm really enjoying in horror at the moment especially but I, yeah I think in terms of the way that the movie knits I think there there's some good some really good writing in terms of the actual plot. And uh, some huge parts of the, a huge part of the action is really well written. I think some of the dialogue sucks, but I think that's maybe more the time, you know, it's the late 80s. These kind of one-liners are just, you know, you're not watching a horror movie of this era without these one-liners. And as far as movies of this era go, it's actually relatively tasteful in terms of dialogue for the most part. But the, the, the cinematography of this movie got me instantly. As soon as you see that crooked old wooden house the homestead of the cult and as soon as you see the sort of tawdry uh like wet looking tie-dye in the windows the the sort of juxtaposition there of these really grisly rural folk horror-esque 
surroundings with you know 70s hippie tie-dye stuff straight away got me and there's some beautiful shots in this movie i think visually it's very clean i think especially for the time it's really crisp it looks great um the editing's very very tight in my opinion and i've got almost no notes about how it's how it's shot and how it looks on screen i think it looks really beautiful yeah i think there were a couple of shots that i really really loved i made a, mm. I made a couple of notes about them there's a shot where Cynthia kind of looks like a nun when she's with Gilda in the shower room. Oh, okay. She has like a towel draped over yeah. her head like she's, uh, what's her name? Mother Teresa. Mm. Uh, and Gilda's all like, I think you want to help people. And she's like, no, I don't. Fuck off. Yeah. She takes, she takes the towel off. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a, a cool shot where like they're, what's his name? Ed and Connie are going off to fucking the turbine. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a really beautiful shot of them walking down this sort of yellow corridor. It has no right to be as beautiful as, as it does, but it's really like Kubrickian. It feels like really, really well considered. Yeah, I knew you'd like that. That whole turbine scene felt very X-Files. And I thought of you as soon as, as, soon as that shit started to unravel. <laughs> I think for me, a lot of the camera movement's quite clever. The opening sequences of um, the, the cops and the fire brigade investigating the burnt building and putting out the fire there's some great crane stuff everything's mm. kind of off kilter and on a wonk you automatically feel like you're you're on the back foot a bit in that whole scene there's a beautiful like kind of tracking shot and then over the edge downward pan when i can't remember who it is one of the characters leaps off a, a balcony and and falls to her death it's a great shot yeah um, it's a really good shot that's miriam yeah. miriam's death is that's it miriam's death yeah and i think that's actually in the trailer that shot which is a real shame because it gives away one of the best bits but that reminded me of a bunch of a bunch of great shit and i think the the pedigree of the cinematography is is pretty peak in this i think the dude did a whole bunch of stuff of varying quality but uh, i skimmed through his imdb and there's some there's some gold in there for sure including the craft <laughs> i mean I, I feel like the craft isn't particularly attractive movie no it's very of its time it's saturated to fuck it's yeah it's a little bit gross in a lot of ways it doesn't seem like the same sort of cinematography in my opinion but he's probably just doing what he's told at that point yeah i feel like it's um it's got that sort of alex Proyas like wachowski's like green wash over it yeah feels really sort of 90s and muddy Mm. but you know it's a fine movie it's a serviceable movie this however i think it's a little bit drab in places in terms of the color palette and you know i don't know that's just the version i'm watching but i also watched the the version that was pretty much uncut there's a couple of versions out there apparently um especially the the bbfc didn't love the uh running over scene that we'll come back to i watched the full unabridged cut and i think yeah like you, I really enjoyed some of the visuals in this. It just felt re- really professional. And I don't know if that just says something about the last few movies we've done, but it felt like a really tight, slick Hollywood movie. with not, not, you know, not a big budget by any stretch of the imagination, but a totally appropriate budget for the scope and scale of what we were seeing. It didn't feel like they were cutting corners. It just felt like it was put together really well. So I think I watched a cut version this time. Mm. Um, not by uh, any choice, but was just the, the version that I could get on mm-hmm. whatever streaming service it was on. But you can maybe fill in some of the gaps for me because it's been a long time since I'm, I've probably seen the uncut version. Sure. But I, but I sort of thought, basically you don't see any of the death scenes of the kids in the, in the sort of support group. Right. Apart from Miriam, when she jumps out the window, you see some of that, but you don't see the impact. 
Mm-hmm. You don't see Dottie, what's her name? Uh, Lana, Elizabeth Daly. Yeah, that's it. You don't see Lana get drowned. I think most of these you see in flashbacks at the end. Yeah. When it's revealed what actually happened to them. You see the action of the death, but for the most part you just see the uh, the sort of the key moments. Yeah. In, in the actual main narrative of the movie. Obviously, I remember that you do see... What's his name? Ralph, Ralph. disembowel himself with the uh, the scalpels. Yeah. Which is gross. But I think like when when you don't see that mm. throughout the movie, it it makes the stuff that you see with Richard Lynch in his like full burn makeup mm. so much more powerful because you're not expecting it. When all that gore comes through the vent system and you get I don't know, a hospital full of carries like you don't you're not expecting that because you've seen minimal gore apart from Richard Lynch throughout this entire film yeah like I say I don't know how much of that is chopped out but like it works it it works for being cut I guess if that's your only real frame of reference then that's all you've got to work with I think but, it's it's laugh out loud shocking when that happens, which tells yeah. me that prior to that, not much of that nature has happened. And I think the flashes of Richard Lynch in his full burn get up, they're really welcome, I think, because the, I think the makeup's great. Uh, you know, yeah, it's I'm really not, good. Not questioning that makeup at all. I think it's brilliant. And and when it pops up, you know exactly what you're in for. You know that this is a sign of the menace to come. And it serves a really. I don't think it's gratuitous. I think it serves a really good purpose. I think it serves a really strong purpose in that it's showing you the true nature of of what we're led to believe is is the Richard Lynch character in this. But the the real trick is, and in my opinion, this works semi universally. When you've got what what most people would consider gratuitous gore, when it's sudden and it's not just kind of packed in with you know hit after hit after hit of explosive gore, it's way more effective. So in this couple, you know, they're fucking in a turbine chamber. And they get chopped to pieces. It doesn't just fall out of one ceiling vent onto the the maintenance guy. It then just rains out of all the all the vents in the entire hospital, all over everybody. It, it is genuinely laugh out loud gory, which is great fun as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I feel like that's maybe the most like Nightmare on Elm Street yeah thing in the movie, apart from all the other things that are sort of tangentially like the. When they go through that like boiler room, it really mm. annoyed me. It's like we just need to shoehorn in <laughs> a boiler like, room. Yeah, the the location <laughs> from. I I wouldn't be surprised if that was a studio note. Maybe yeah. Maybe you know. The more we talk about it, the more I'm seeing the connection. <laughs> I think maybe there's maybe there's some deliberate linkage here that I missed on first watch. I, I'm quite an innocent viewer. I'm just watching it, you know, for the entertainment. Really, I'm not watching it to you know, talk about it for two hours and dissect it on a podcast. I'm just... (laughs) (laughs) They definitely wanted it to be reminiscent of Nightmare Mm. on Elm Street. And like like I say, I don't know how much of that came from the studio. They were like, hey, we've got this movie about this burnt guy. Right. Let's let's try and, you know, let's try and steal a couple of quid from New Line. Yeah, it feels like... It feels like if, if it was that close, somebody would have said no at some point. Like... It feels too close in terms of the the time scale and too high profile a movie on, on both counts, Nightmare on Elm Street and Bad Dreams, to really risk that. But I don't know. I don't know enough about 
how that kind of stuff works in the industry really to speculate. I'll tell you what I will speculate on. The career of Elizabeth Daly, who plays Lana in this mm. movie. I fell in love with her when she was Dottie in uh, Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. But I did not realize that she's not only Buttercup from the Powerpuff Girls, but Tommy yeah. Pickles from Rugrats. <laughs> I thought she was superb in this. It, you know, it made me think, why haven't I seen more of this kind of role from her? You know, this kind of timid, I guess, mostly frightened, but also very brave character who's obviously going through a really tough time slash has a lot of mental health issues. You know, she's awesome as Dottie pining after Pee-wee, you know, to be, to be convincingly obsessed with getting with <laughs> Pee-wee Herman. You've got you to gotta have some chops as an actress, I think. Uh, but in this, I think she really smashes at home. She's not in it enough, as far as I'm concerned. She, she was a character I thought could have really developed and could have had not like sidekick material, but kind of duo material. You know, they could have teamed up a little bit more, I thought. So I thought the death was a little untimely in terms of the, you know, we just didn't get to grow into her enough, I don't think. Do you think that's a bit of like a leave and wanting more type scenario? Like I do actually, yeah, because I think you're supposed to think what I what I thought, like oh they're going to team up or she gets it. There's several people who who get it. You know, she's sort of spoiled for choice in terms of allies, and it's more telling that she comes from this unity cult where everyone's together and everyone's one essentially. She sleeps for 13 years, she comes back, and then she won't trust or team up with anyone. Yeah, yeah it's an interesting sort of trauma exp- exploration, I think, and. Uh, I think Jennifer Rubin is is perfectly cut out to play that role. I think she does everything that she's supposed to do in this movie, but I don't know, maybe a little bit flat at times. If I have one overall umbrella criticism of the movie is that at some points and in some ways that I felt was significant, it was just a little muted, but then it, it hits in all the right places as well. So I kind of had a rough time um, establishing what my overall take on this movie is. And the more I think about it in terms of moments, the more I just think it's really enjoyable. Um, but the more I, you know, the more I look at the zoomed out version of the movie, the more I think there was a few sections where the the edges were just kind of knocked off a little bit for me, and it wasn't quite hitting home as much as it could have. I think it's really a really clever movie in terms of the concept. It's really well executed in terms of the actors for the most part. Script's tight, production's tight as you like. There's just a couple of bits where I think, ooh, this maybe lacks a little bit of bite. Yeah, I completely agree, really, and like, I th- I think there are. Loads of moments that are really solid, mm. but there are—I think there are whole characters that are just sort of nothing. Yeah, like I'm a huge fan of Reanimator. Spent a lot of time with Bruce Abbott in my life. Mm-hmm. In this, he's just sort of nothing. He's just sort of there, apart from when he goes insane at the end. Mm. Can we talk about the car crash, car we can. attack scene? Just let me make one small point off the back of what you just said. I think most of these characters are only really interesting when they go nuts. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of the time, they're just kind of reading the lines a little bit. Because everyone goes nuts at some point in this movie. And it's most compelling when they're bonkers. <laughs> yeah, true. I think because, like, Ralph is, like, the sort of snotty comic relief. And I quite like him throughout, i got to say. I do quite enjoy Ralph. I found him. I found him to be quite flat, but then he mm. really like brings it in the, in his like meltdown scene. Absolutely, and like none of the performances in this are what I would describe as good. Mm. Like I think they're solid and I think they're perfect for the movie. Mm. But like, it's it's big eighties soapy acting for the most yeah. part. Apart from Richard Lynch, who is the only. I, 
person who I would consider to be like a, an acting actor, like sure. capital A. Yeah, everyone's like doing these sort of big over the top performances, and it annoys me when that's like quippy, like oh, if I commit suicide, do I get my money back or whatever, all that shit. Yeah. But then when like when they when they go mad, when they when they freak out or when they have like meltdowns, mm. that approach to the performance becomes really good becomes really like useful yeah because you're already at a level and you take it up a level it's like boom here we go yeah it might be perverse for us as audiences to crave that but it is what i want from these characters unfortunately they're teed up in such a way and put in front of me in such a way that i'm waiting for them to do that yeah Uh, i don't know whether that's crass or, or not but that's what the movie is putting in front of me and that's how i'm reacting maybe I spent a little while praising the writing of this movie and I'm going to completely go back on myself. Maybe it's actually badly written because all of these characters, it transpires throughout the movie are being pumped full of lots of semi-experimental slash illegal slash inappropriate drugs. So if you're if you're an actor and you receive this script and it says, you know, you're, you're pumped full of like, you know, grade B, been on the shelf for 20 years now, illegal type of Thorazine... <laughs> For the, for the, you know, 80 minutes of a 90-minute movie, how are you going to act? Probably a bit muted, a bit faded, a bit disconnected, etc. But then you have this, like, five minutes where you have maybe insane clarity, but, like, clarity nonetheless. Your, you know, the trajectory of your performance is going to be pretty subdued for the most part, and then you're going to ramp up and burn mm. bright for a brief period of time. Maybe that's not great writing. <laughs> maybe, in fact, that's... Uh, giving us a lot of flat characters that then have a burst of action and disappear. And maybe that uh, doesn't play into the rhythm of the movie the way it should. I don't know. Well, I'm just opening my mouth here. I think what, what the movie's trying to do is, is give you like a timeline of drugs that they're on Mm. and the, the drugs change as they move towards their deaths. Right. So as Dr. Beresford manipulates, I mean, we should say now, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the movie if you're listening to this, but Dr. Beresford, it turns out has a, a master plan to um, postulate fairly crap theories in terms of mental health uh, and the treatment of mental health disorders, and then uh, you know puppet master his patients towards proving them right with concoctions of uh, ridiculous drugs and uh, lots of abusive methodologies. Should we say yes? He's going in the top five list now. Let's say it out loud. <laughs> he's up there. He's yeah, going he's, in. He's literally using drugs to make teenagers commit suicide like (laughs) pretty bad doctoring yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't choose him from a list uh he's on he's gonna be on some lists he's gonna be on my bad doctor list guarantee and what i I look for in a bad doctor is also an excellent performance and i think he absolutely nails it in this again just not there enough but you know yeah because he's harris ulin like you know he's gonna be a baddie yeah and then like it's it's happening, and you're not like, like we're, we're sort of moving through the movie, and, he, and he's not showing any baddiness. Mm. And then suddenly, boom, he's the baddie, and that's that's great. Mm. But like when you set a movie in a mental hospital, you're sort of courting the idea that things maybe aren't as they seem. Sure. But then that also butts up against like the conventions of the slasher genre, where you absolutely buy this supernatural slasher figure. Mm-hmm. You believe that he's there because you can see him. Mm-hmm. Like, 
even watching this now and having seen it before and maybe not remembering it quite as well as I thought I did, I had completely forgotten the twist ending. Mm-hmm. When I was thinking about Harris Ulan's character, Dr. Beresford, I thought maybe he was like an acolyte of, right. of Harris and he was sort of helping to move things along for the spirit or whatever is haunting these people. Obviously, that's not the case. I never doubted that Harris, the character Harris, not Harris Ulan. Yes, it's confusing. But I never, <laughs> I never, I never doubted that Richard Lynch's character wasn't there. Like I always just sort of believed that this, this was really happening, mm. and I think that's what that's a clever a clever way of building on the mythology of a film that you're sort of trying to tie yourself in with, because we all know that Freddy is real in the context of the movies. Yeah. So we're, we're seeing this thing that feels almost generous, reminiscent of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. So you buy into it. Well, I buy into it anyway. I don't know about you. Oh, I, I buy that he's there from the very beginning. Yeah, she's being haunted. It's, yeah. it's, it's legit. He has the power to manipulate real-life, real-time events from the grave. But then obviously, I guess we, we find out that we're only ever really seeing things from her perspective. So mm. when we assume that he drowned Lana or he convinced Miriam to throw herself out the window after being in the lift with her, and that's all going on inside Cynthia's head. Mm. It's so obvious, but then it also is like, I believe this one thing for the entire movie, and now this feels like a much bigger twist than it should. Well, that's why I think it's really good misdirection because, you know, the worst kind of misdirection you see coming a mile off, uh, the the best kind, I think, leaves you smack bang in the middle of not seeing it coming and not looking elsewhere for it at all, being totally blindsided, you know, not thinking, oh, there's misdirection at play here. Maybe it's the butler or whatever. You just Mm. don't expect there to be a plot twist. And I think that's what this does really well. You, You totally buy, like you said, the the fantastical horror element of this guy basically being a ghost and being maybe empowered by the corpses on his conscience and coming back to kind of suck her in to complete his culty whatever the fuck. And because you so wholly believe that, you you don't even see a seasoned villainous actor like Harris Eulin creeping around in the eaves and then popping out at the end to be the mastermind behind it all. And I think that's good writing, basically. Yeah. Or I mean, a naive audience, me. Well, but like also me, like I say, like when you watch any film set in a mental hospital mm. or a mental health facility or whatever we want to call it, yeah, like you you have to think, right, okay, the film is telling us something about these characters. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're not to be trusted mm-hmm. uh, or their perceptions are not to be trusted yeah. rather than. I don't just mistrust everyone that's got mental health issues. I wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't like any of my friends. But yeah, so like you're, you're set up to like think oh, something. But I, like I said, I never, never considered it in this yeah. because it's just so matter of fact. And like we don't really know that uh, Cynthia is mentally ill. I mean, this is a criticism. Another criticism is that she came out of a coma after 13 years. Mm. She went into a coma at 12 years old. She's not a child in an adult woman's body. Right. She's an adult woman who has... She she never comes across as, like, someone that hasn't been around for the last 13 years. She doesn't know about CDs, Jamie. She doesn't know about... <laughs> she doesn't know about MTV. Yeah. 
CVs and MTs or whatever MTV. she calls them. <laughs> yeah. Again, I enjoyed that dialogue. I thought it was good. I, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I, I mean, this, one of the scariest parts for me is that she probably has no mental illness. She's come out of a coma and she's dealing with trauma, sure. I mean, she doesn't yeah. actually remember any of it, so she has a lot of therapy ahead of her, but she's immediately pumped full of insane drugs yeah. that totally send her batshit insane. And, and the same for everyone in this place. It seems like, you know, they're all obviously battling something, but they're being fed a cocktail of hallucinogenic... There's, there's opiates in there. There's At one point, he pulls out a, a vial of pure THC and says it. I, think, I can't remember what he says. Be like, this get the whole of Detroit high or something. <laughs> like, it's just like, and they're putting that in everyone's food. Like, it's completely nuts. Did you know that that guy is uh, Roger Rabbit? Oh, really? Yeah, that's Charles Fleischer. So, like, oh, when I was crap. A, when I was like a little kid, maybe five years old, I only had like I don't know four or five videos, yeah. and one of one of them was the video that they give to video shops to make them order who framed roger rabbit to have it have in their video shop no way so it was ju- it's just him talking to camera occasionally doing the Ro- the roger rabbit voice <laughs> brilliant uh, like intercut with with a couple of scenes for the movie and it's like maybe 20 minutes long and nice. i would watch it all the time because i had five videos yeah it's on the rotation um so yeah so his his face is burned burned into my skull forever I mean, I love that scene. That was one of my favorite parts of the movie. And I felt like, um, you know, pacing wise, it was it was put in a pretty good spot for me because I'm not saying I was drifting, but I needed there to be a resolution somewhere because there's just yeah. so much build and build and build. And when you find out just the absurd amount of drugs that this guy is just hurling into people's veins, I was like, oh, that's absolutely priceless. <laughs> really. Good. If, if we were playing uh, who you're casting in a remake, that character is Wayne Knight for me. Who's Wayne Knight? He's Newman in Seinfeld. He's oh, in super. Jurassic Park. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I mean, Wayne Knight in every role in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so let's talk about the car crash, kill, murder scene. Let's do it. Go on. You first. Does it suck? Fuck no. It's incredible. Is it a cop out? Uh, in what sense? In the sense that it doesn't actually happen. Yeah. No, it's I. I hate this. Right. I. I. It, it, it's the opposite of a cop out because it's bonus death. You know, he he dies in this spectacular, grisly way that we get to see from multiple angles, multiple times, and then wapow, he's still alive, and we get to see him die again. That's what I want more of in villain deaths. I want to see them die in multiple ways many times. I don't think it's a cop-out at all. I love I love a good, uh, you know, dream death followed by real death. I... Uh-oh, you I, hate it. I mean, <laughs> I, I like the, 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 the act of it. Mm. Like, I enjoy the, 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 the whole thing of it. I enjoy that he calls Dr. Beresford Dr. Addictive Buttface. <laughs> that... I take issue with that is some of the most shocking dialogue I've ever heard in my entire life. If that wasn't ad libbed, that's some piss poor dialogue right there. Yeah, that's like that's a line that Ralph might have said and might have even been able to carry off. 
I don't think Ralph would have said that because he's a little bit more witty. I think maybe this is them trying to portray this doctor as being very milk toast and very bland mm. and, and not really having the capacity to do swears or be really aggressive, like a real normie kind of doctor guy. But it just swing and a miss, bud, real bad. So like, obviously this, this scene exists to show the power of the drugs. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Or just how many different ways you can run a guy over. <laughs> but yeah, I just think... Oh, I, maybe it's the reveal, the way that he's just in the car and he's like, whoa! Like, yeah, the reveal may, was a little bit... Me, a little bit nothing. May, maybe it's that. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe I think it's a little a, bit Evil Dead. I like it. Yeah, do you okay. know what it is? I've, do you know what? I had this horrible, uh, like recurring dream when I was a kid about being crouched in a in the same kind of crouched sideways position and being crushed by something really big and really heavy. So seeing him in that like seated fetal position being smashed into by a car, it just ticks all my boxes. That's a great way to get hit by a car crouched in a ball sideways. I think that's brilliant. I th- like I say, I think the the act of it is good. Yeah. Um, I watched like I say a bunch of the behind the scenes footage that I found on online somewhere. Mm. I think it was on like the Fangoria Facebook page in 2019. It's fun just watching people squirt blood on a car windscreen. <laughs> it's so fun how like your brain like fills in so many gaps. Mm. Because literally just watching a windscreen with. Bruce Abbott behind it and two guys are just like squirting blood on it and in the context of the movie that's a thing that that's that's a thing that happens yeah it's weird it's weird how your brain does that I, I it's, think it's movies but you know I take no issue with them giving us a hallucinatory death followed by a real death followed by a fake out return <laughs> followed by you know I, I think it's cool because you're, you're given license to do that by the fact that at this point everyone's hallucinating and I think that's fun can I say something? There's a character in this film that doesn't die. And I really, really wanted them to die. Who did you want to die? The cop. Oh, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, he does not die. Not not a terrible movie cop. He's trying he's to do a... his job. No, he's not. This woman mm. wakes up from a 13-year coma. Yeah, and he's like, I... did you do it? Are you the, are you the baddie? Like, yeah, I... I... I'm going to have to hard disagree with you here, bud. At no point is this guy allowed to do his job in this movie. He keeps coming to this fucking loony bin where one by one, everyone in his main suspect's therapy group is dying in the grisliest way possible. And she's always there. And he keeps saying, I'd like to arrest her, please. Everyone keeps saying, no, don't be ridiculous. As the body count climbs and everyone she knows dies and she's, literally always there nobody is allowing him to arrest her in fairness if he'd arrested her straight out of the coma nobody would have died yeah they would why dr beresford would have still pumped these kids full of drugs right i kind of read it more as dr beresford saw her as his like okay now the fucking group's complete now i've got an antagonist you know, now that the narrative fits, she brings this baggage of having this dead cult leader in her past. I can pump them all full of drugs to, you know, become victims of her, essentially, kind of using her as a, a patsy. Because his crowning thing was like his theory about her recovery specifically was to 
get everyone dead. <laughs> I don't know. My point is, this cop is is saying all the right things. He's saying, we need to arrest her. She is massively part of these deaths. He's wrong, obviously. She's not killing them. But, you know, nick her and then work up towards Beresford, surely. But, like, he he always believes Beresford until he takes his gun. Yeah, that's true. That's not particularly good police work. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I think I would... Listen, I'm trying to wipe away the vast majority of my personality and imagine myself as a cop. And I think what I would want to do is arrest this woman. <laughs> That's my first move. As soon as she wakes up, <laughs> cuffs on. Like, yeah. I'd cuff her in her coma. Fuck it. <laughs> I just think his personality is is the personality of a dickhead. I like him. He's funny. I, I mean, I would have. I'd love it if he died. Don't get me wrong. There's nobody in this movie should be spared. Really, everyone should die. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, a shame we don't get to see him go. I guess. And he's he's also basically the same character that he plays in Repo Man, but he's a cop now. On the other side of things, yeah. Who? I mean, how would you kill him? How would you have him die in this movie? How would I kill him? Just hit him with a brick. Well, how would they kill him in the movie, do you mean? Um, <laughs> yes. How would you write his death in this movie? Just hit him with a brick and keep going until his head was pulp. Um, no, like, I don't know. In the in the context of the movie, he should get shot by Beresford. On the roof, in that scene? Yeah. For, like a fatal shot? Like, uh, how are you going to shoot it? You can have him shot... S- straight through the full, eye. <laughs> full cranial blowout. You're definitely dead. I just shot you in the head. Yeah. Your service revolver. Okay, right. Good. Just checking. And then, like, empty the empty the clip into into his body as he lies on the ground. And then Beresford runs and jumps off the roof or whatever. I don't know. Like, okay. It's a strong ending. It is. I don't see why they didn't do it. To be totally honest, there's some, I guess, catharsis in Cy Richardson's cop, whatever the cop's called. Mm. Like in him knowing that his whole narrative that he concocted is wrong. There is some there is some joy in that. I mean, who's the real bad guy in this movie, Jamie? Uh, science. Medicine. Yeah, a bizarre but fun set of attempted messages in this movie, I think. A lot of criticism of this movie says that it's totally nihilistic and devoid of hope, and I think I would completely agree. <laughs> it dumps on, like, every shred of... Um, you know, even the remotest possible hope um, at every turn. And it pretty much unashamedly, there's nothing good or there's no peace in this movie. There's nothing at the end of this that says, you know, here's a uh, at least like a back to level settings outcome. Yeah. It's all just fucking down, down, down from the very start. The only characters that, you know, survive, apart from the cop, obviously, you've got Cynthia and you've got Dr. Mm-hmm. Carmen. Yeah. And like Dr. Carmen's probably gonna be fine because he's a cardboard prick. But like um Cynthia has had this horrible trauma, coma for thirteen years, mm. straight into horrible trauma. She's not gonna be okay. She's not gonna be okay. She's gonna Yeah, and she's she's manipulated from the second this movie starts to the second this movie finishes. She doesn't she lacks any real sense of agency, even when you think she's acting of her own free will and, and of her own kind of off the steam of her own sobriety and, and making progress and sort of healing. Nope. 
Uh, none of that is happening. It's just getting worse and worse, and she's just being manipulated more and more and more. She's a really tragic character. It takes a little bit out of how much we relate to and enjoy her performance, I think, because she's she's so constantly browbeaten, manipulated, and led. That makes for a difficult protagonist, I think. But it, you know, it plays into the movie's theme of uh, nothing is okay and nothing will be okay. <laughs> yeah, which I enjoyed. Roger Ebert called this film an advertisement for teen suicide. How do you feel yeah, about that? I think, I think Roger, I, I fucking, okay, I'm going to say something controversial here. I don't fucking care what Roger Ebert says about any horror movie in the history of horror movies. The guy just doesn't like horror. You know, if you're going to be a critic, fucking don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's my advice. I, for, for the most part, fuck Roger Ebert. I couldn't care less what the guy thinks. This movie has things going for it, and he just fucking chose not to enjoy it, is my opinion. Yeah, I think, like, Gene Siskel doesn't like horror films. Roger, right. Ebert, Roger Ebert definitely likes horror films, but he's uh, he's only there for the fun, I think. He doesn't like He doesn't like horror films that are actually horrible. Roger Ebert doesn't like horror films in the same way George Bush doesn't care about black people. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Do you remember when Kanye West and Mike Myers were on TV and Kanye West said, George Bush does not care about black people? No. You didn't see this? I don't think oh, so. Oh, I'm going to have to send it to you. It's a classic. <laughs> Maybe this needs to be edited out. I don't know. Listen, this is a movie where Ralph disembowels himself with two scalpels and, and says later his last words last word is later if Roger Ebert can't even fucking find one sentence in his review to write about that he ain't fucking watching the movie for the right reasons get out you're boring I have an issue with Ralph's death scene okay hit me so we're meant to believe that it is the cocktail of drugs that has sent everybody over the edge, right? Yeah. But when Dr. Carmen has his episode later on, mm. it's because he takes one of Ralph's drugs, thinking it's Valium or whatever. Yeah. So, Ralph didn't take the drugs. That day he didn't, right? So that's a whole day where he didn't take the drugs. Mm-hmm. So well, Ralph, Ralph's a different thing, though, right? He's he's uh, he's having a lot of his violent urges suppressed by the drugs. Well, that's, I mean, that's what they're telling us, but surely that's a lie because if Doctor Beresford wants him to commit suicide, or what's the what's the the thing? Die by suicide? Is that what we say now? Complete suicide. Yeah. Yeah. If he wants to if he wants to punch his own ticket. Then <laughs> that's way more PC. Punch <laughs> his own ticket, cut his own cheese. Yeah, I think maybe Doctor Beresford's motives are slightly murky at this point. I think. <laughs> I think I thought he was trying to manipulate the scenarios of their deaths to be pinnable on Cynthia to back up his theory about his, you know, very exciting pharmacology and um, you know psychotherapy shit so uh because he actually drowns and pushes people to their death right he physically does that so he succeeds with ralph because ralph dies by suicide with cynthia there in such a way that could easily be pinned on cynthia by disemboweling except it couldn't be because 
the angle that he did it and all that stuff. Like, police science is a thing. Yeah, they've but not, I, up until this point, they're, they're still kind of trying to pin stuff on her. Like, um, when Beresford is defending her, he says, oh, what? so he she drowned her without getting wet, that kind of thing. I think the idea is that she's talking them into ending their lives or that she's she's instrumental somehow in their deaths in a way that you know they can't necessarily pin hmm. i don't know man i think the motivation's questionable and i think i kind of enjoy that because it lets you speculate more and it lets you have conversations about it but ralph's death i don't believe that he died by his wounds that's my only problem i mean a scalpel goes pretty deep right I mean, it's only like an inch and a half long scalpel that goes into him on, on either side of his like his main mast. He's not hitting anything major there, really. I don't know. I just found it a bit of a cop-out. No more of a cop-out than the fucking dream. Oh, it was all a dream. <laughs> it was a, Yeah, it was a dream, but I saw that dream as just a fun way to run Harris Eulin over multiple times. I was writing a note when the It Was All a Dream reveal happened. So when Harris Eulin came back later, I was like, wait, what? He's We've, we've got rid of him already. He's so you done. didn't he's, see that, right? <laughs> he's done. And I had to take the whole movie back and be like, yeah. oh, okay. Do you notice Ralph wearing a Terminator t-shirt at one point in this movie? Yeah. Pretty cool. What about the music? Tell me what you think about the music in this well, movie. So holy I cow, would, is it a wild ride? I wanted to say like the, the end of this movie, it ends so abruptly. Mm-hmm. Like, basically, the characters are, like, in the middle of a sentence, and it cuts to black, and then you get that fucking screaming, sweet child of mine, intro, noodle. Like, Worst part of the movie for me. I did not want to hear that song, or any so, Guns N' Roses. It's so incongruous. Like, it is, there's no there's no need for there to be sweet child of mine. Like, I, I know that when they chose sweet child of mine, it wasn't sweet child of mine yet. It wasn't the one fucking Guns N' Roses song that we've heard every day for our entire lives. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe the cho- them choosing that song was part of the filmmaker's dastardly plot to make us all want to commit suicide. Could be. I, I take a slightly more generous view of this. As much as I really dislike that song, I think it's perfect. The credits of this movie. Because they're always calling her Love Child. And it's a post-70s hippie song, isn't it, really? It's such a damp, boring, wailing, annoying, grating, you know, fucking ode to everything that sucks, really. like, And it, it feels post-70s, it feels like an evolution of that 70s hippie sound. It's like if Jim Morrison was just somehow even more boring he probably would have gone on to sound like Sweet Child of Mine. So I think it's perfect for the credits of this movie, and I hate it completely. So, like, I love that record. I love Appetite for Destruction so yeah. much. Apart from Paradise City and Sweet Child of Mine, mm. like, every song on that is a is an absolute ripper. Right. But those two songs suck so much. <laughs> and those are the only songs that you fucking hear. But it's perfect for the credits of this movie, right? Like, it fits. If I'd have had two scalpels. <laughs> People who like Sweet Child of Mine, there's bound to be billions of them out there. Maybe one of them is listening to this podcast. Uh, it doesn't do any harm for, for them at the end of this movie. And that is the vast majority of people, especially at this point in time. You know, in 1988, 
nobody's going, oh, God, sweet child of mine at the end of a movie. People are going, and dancing in the aisles. They're having a great time. I don't think they are. Fucking blows. Sucks so much. So does most of the music in this movie. Did you read the little piece of trivia about what was going to be the end credits? Uh, X, right? Yeah. Yeah, that would have... That would have been great. Yeah, that would have been considerably better. What is I've, the version of My Way, by the it's way? It's Sid Vicious. It's not the Sid Vicious version, is it? Yeah. It doesn't sound like it. That's exactly what it sounds like. Oh, weird. And you know yeah. it's Sid Vicious because at the start he says, you cunt, I'm not a queer. Ah, good old Sid. I have that on vinyl, on single. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. Oh, rough hang. I think because they were given away for free at one point. I, I think, yeah, music-wise... Not great. On the B side of that seven inch is, is it friggin' in the rigging? No, it's uh, a punk prayer by Ronnie Biggs. Oh god. <laughs> oh my god. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this movie was a very good idea, very well executed in a lot of ways, got in its own way a few times, still very entertaining, very slick in terms of the the way that it's all kind of pulled together at the end. I actually really enjoyed the ending. I, I'm not hypercritical of those kind of quick endings because everything's resolved. You might as well get the fuck out. You know, nowadays, modern horror endings tend to have, uh, annoy me a lot more where they try and be poignant and they try and provide lots of kind of epilogue style. You know, there's always a fucking montage and a whole bunch of like after the fact character development they just never bothered to do during the actual movie. I'd mm. rather you just said the movie's over. Sweet child of mine. (laughs) I would have rather watched seven more hours of movie if it meant (laughs) it would delay getting to Sweet Child of Mine. I can't even tell you how quickly I turned this movie off. When I heard that riff, I was like, oh, really? Click. (laughs) Goodbye. So quick. I don't think anyone's ever turned Sweet Child of Mine off quicker. It was just long enough for me to recognize it, and then it was gone. The music in this movie sucks as well. Like the the score music, it sounds like Magnum PI or something. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like I hate real to say, but bad. It sounds a lot like Dream music. Warriors. <laughs> it's fucking the same as Dream Warriors. the The soundtrack of Dream Warriors is amazing. You think so? I think the song Dream Warriors by Dokken is yeah. so fucking good. I. It, this feels a little late in the pod to say this, but I really don't like Dream Warriors. Well, at all, I can I can see that because it's a couple of good scenes, couple of good genuinely scary scenes, but fuck me, what a mess! Yeah, are you familiar with the song? Do you know the song Dream Warriors? Yeah, I don't like it, dude. Is it? Do you not like it because it doesn't make any sense? Because it's written by a man with a very limited grasp of English. <laughs> no, it's nothing. I I love loads of music written by. Fucking English-speaking people with a limited grasp of English. I just didn't like that song, really. Can I remind you of how the chorus goes? Please do. It goes, we're the Dream Warriors, don't want to dream no more. We're the Dream Warriors, and maybe tonight we'll be gone. <laughs> I like it a lot more when you do it. God, like, what a crock of shit. What's I don't the know, guy, Dream Warriors. What's the guy from Dokken called? Like Bobby Dokken or whatever? Peter like, Dokken, yeah. <laughs> No idea. Docky Dockin. Oh, Jesus. His voice is amazing. Very high. Uh, just, I don't know, 
I'm glad we're not really doing any Nightmare on Elm Street stuff. We're not really doing any major horror franchises, which I love. Which brings me on to my next point. This movie gave me not even the shred of an impression there would ever be a sequel, a reprise, a legacy sequel, or a prequel, which I loved. And that kind of ending does that for me. It's like, thank you for watching this very self-contained film. The end. These characters are all done for now. And I, I really like that. I think it, it bookends a piece. And I wasn't left wanting more. And not in a bad way. I completely agree, and I like like a lot of the the, the marketing around the time it was coming out was like, yeah. "There's a new killer in town, and oh, he's called really. Harris." Like the trailer is like, "You've seen Friday the Thirteenth, you've seen Nightmare on Elm Street, now get ready for bad dreams." And it's like, okay, that's how you market a film in 1988, I guess. But like. The marketing feels like we're setting up the next, you know, horror icon. Yeah. But like, how would you sequelize this? Even if, even if they decided, okay, this film did really well, which it, it didn't, but this film did really, really well. Mm. So we're gonna make Bad Dreams two, Badder Dreams. Badder. <laughs> More worser dreams. <laughs> but like, you've already fucking. Mrs. Voorhees, the killer, anyway. Yeah. So, like, what do you do? Be like, oh, but now he is back. Like, how? This is, yeah, you can't okay, do it. First of all, plenty of movies have done that. Well, yeah. <laughs> Friday the Thirteenth for one. Yeah, some of the most successful horror franchises on earth. Second of all, can you go back to the start of this podcast, please, and just edit out where I said I didn't think it was trying to be Dream Warriors because I wasn't aware of that promotional campaign. Now I sound like a complete fucking idiot. But yeah, I, I think there's there's definitely an argument to say you can sequelize anything. And, you know, give me, give me two minutes and I could sequelize this fucking easily. But it doesn't well, we got need time. it. Okay, uh, his fucking son. The doctor's son just carries on his work. You thought the the those bad dreams were bad. Get ready for worse dreams. You know, it's just fucking. It's easy. <laughs> bad or dreams like, too. Literal nightmares. Yeah, or well you do do a predator two and you follow the cop. <laughs> you just you do it. You get Danny Glover in there and you know you just fucking. I don't know, man. You can sequelize anything, but my point is, this doesn't feel like it needs it. It's a cool tale in and yeah, of itself. It yeah, it doesn't warrant it. Mainly because no no characters are really strong enough to kind of carry on for another movie. It does its job in a, a fun, self-contained, pretty well-executed way. And it doesn't make you think, hey, you know what I want more of? Harris. Or, you know, really wish Ralph hadn't died. You know, it's, it just, it resolves nicely. Unlike the riff in Sweet Child of Mine. If I was sequelizing it, it's hit me. We do a Friday 13th, Seven, five, whichever one it is. Well, and go like, easy now. Big difference. Five is unwatchable. Seven is great, in my opinion. Which one's five? Five is the one you love with all the fucking 36 main characters and all the coke and all the horrible shitness. Yeah. Well, basically, what I mean, what I'm saying is, I would make. Whist in your voice. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what I'm saying is. I would make in Bad Dreams 2 Badder Dreams I would make Cynthia the antagonist. Okay. Like she's so fucked up by all the stuff that she's 
She's now mm. being being led by the Harris in her brain to, I don't know, kill people and not remember it. Okay. The, uh, the, the She's asleep and she's sleepwalking. Maybe that's it. The abused it. becomes the abuser type deal. Yeah. Okay, so Friday the 13th Part 5 is, um, just to clear this up because it drives me fucking mental, Tommy Jarvis is an adult. Oh, yeah, and not he that goes, one. goes to the halfway house. And what's what's Seven is, it... is fucking awesome. It's where Jason comes up from the bottom of the lake and uh, has to basically... Everyone calls it Jason versus Carrie because the girl has uh, telekinetic powers. Oh, yeah, she's got the shining. Another one of my bad doctor top fives. Um, I, I, I love Friday the 13th Part 7 and everyone hates it. It's a, it's a real... Uh, I'm fighting a losing battle there, I think. Is five so is five the one where Jason is a different guy? Just like yeah. it's a guy called Chris or whatever. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't really have Jason in it at all. It's called like the new the new batch or whatever. A new beginning, yeah. Yeah. The new batch. That's critters, right? I think <laughs> Oh, it's Gremlins. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong too then. It's not the one with all the Coke fiends and the three thousand cast members. I don't know. I fucking thought it sucked. But seven. Oh yeah, give me seven all day long. All right, so, Sam, let's let's take a little break, and we'll yeah, come back and we'll break. and we'll give a we'll give our score and wrap up bad dreams. Okay, we'll wake up from from this bad dream about okay. bad dreams. Come on, man, does that thing even work? No, there's nothing out there. It's just dead air. I'm awake. So Sam, what what are you rating Bad Dreams out of and what's your score? I'm going to rate Bad Dreams out of scalpels in my guts. And I'm going to give it one scalpel in my guts out of two. I didn't know where you were going with that number-wise. <laughs> I was like, that's because... pretty low. Because <laughs> because I think it hits, it, it hits enough to half kill me, but it doesn't quite fully get the job done. It's, it's a very good horror movie, in my opinion, because it's incredibly well-constructed. I think it does absolutely everything it sets out to do really well. It's completely entertaining from start to finish. I genuinely think there's some great directing, some really beautiful shots, and the overall feel of the movie to me is just scary enough to be on the sort of rougher end of horror, um, mm. w- where it could have easily been much more vanilla. So I think it is quite brave. I think the writing, for the most part, is very good. There are some real clunky bits, but for the, for the most part, I really enjoyed the movie. It's just not quite as memorable as I would have hoped, and it maybe doesn't. Uh, it doesn't have that wow factor. It doesn't make me walk away and want to tell my friends all about it straight away. But not a second wasted watching a movie like Bad Dreams. I really enjoyed it. So one big old disemboweling scalpel in the guts out of two from me. What about you, bud? So I'm going to give it four out of six gut raining vents. <laughs> nice. Like I, I agree with you. I think it mostly does what it sets out to do i think it's interesting that it that it uses people's knowledge of the of, of like the supernatural slasher genre against them mm-hmm. to lull you into this false sense of security and then actually deliver something quite different at the end and i think it's doing that on purpose and i think it is courting as well as like courting nightmare on elm street fans to come and watch this new film about a burnt guy killing people mm. like it's also it's using that as a launch pad to have a, a more interesting idea, mm-hmm. which I think is 
the best thing that you could say about Bad Dreams is that it's got some really good ideas. Yeah, the cult angle is fantastic. I think that's really original. You yeah. Know, a cult leader kills himself and all of his followers apart from one and then he comes back from the grave or does he you know that's great that's really really great stuff yeah it totally makes sense as well like you never you never you never don't buy like his motivation there like you always Mm -hmm. buy that that motivation like he killed his entire flock apart from one person Mm -hmm. it would make sense even if it is all in your head like it would make sense that you would think I'm the one that got away. Like, is mm. is is he coming for me? Mm-hmm. And like, so it makes sense from that point of view. But then it also makes sense that if if he is real and he is coming for you, that it would make sense for him to want to do that. Yeah, within the context of a movie, because it's a cool thing. That's what I mean. Conceptually, it's strong. I think yeah. one thing we we didn't talk an enormous amount about that I just want to touch on very briefly is the visual effects in terms of uh, we talked about the the um, burn makeup that Harris wears, which is not overused. I don't think we we kind of want to see more of that again. It's got it's got that kind of classic makeup and monster movie type thing going on where you you crave more of it and you never quite get enough, which I think is brilliant. But the scene where we see in quite graphic detail all of the cultists burning it's like a fire overlay effect right yeah so it's a composite effect it's brilliant Um, yeah so i I think that's really genius because obviously it shows like at the start the sort of purifying nature of the fire and they're all sort Mm. of enjoying it and then when it switches to like horror and oh my god i'm actually burning and this you know isn't the fun nice time i was expecting it to be like they switch from this sort of composite effect where you can see people and you can see them sort of experiencing it to like stunt performers yeah uh, engulfed in actual flames and flailing about horribly screaming yeah and it's so fucking effective it's like yeah i don't know there's that meme that was going around expectation versus reality and it's like that's that's literally it it's like this is what you thought it was going to be like but turns out you're just on fucking fire mate (laughs) you're just gonna burn to death dude yeah holding your baby i mean it's such a (laughs) such a bleak and punishing scene and it pulls no punches and that transition like you said from the composite fire to the stunt performers actually on fire and all of the different body parts on fire you know i just thought it was really well done the house exploding was great everything with fire in it in this movie was executed really well and i'm led to believe that's not easy in movies to do that really well a lot of the locations are really great and all of the effects that take place in and involving the different locations i think are just fucking brilliantly done so huge props i I, you know i want to make a, a proper special um special note to go back to the fact that richard lynch played a horribly burnt man who was burnt in a very similar way to the way that he was burnt in real life? Because I think a lot of the a lot of the performance chops in this movie uh, land with him. He he's an absolutely fantastic and wholly convincing villain in this, and for him to step into that role, having lived it, and that must have been that's beyond excruciating in in ways I can't even imagine. And then he chooses to recreate it for his art. I think that's massively admirable. You don't read that in a fucking uh, what's his name, Dick Eddie, but. <laughs> review do you, Roger Ebert no you don't I mean they do reference the fact that he is physically scarred yeah but, but credit where credit's due like you're not going to catch me reenacting the absolute worst thing that ever happened to me in my entire life that was both physically painful probably kind of shameful uh, to him in, in a way that he's probably worked through since but you know a horrible 
bizarre, painful, traumatic experience in my life. I'm not going to fucking reenact that on screen in front of people. That's incredibly brave. Yeah. It's killer. I think there's like a really cool bit. It doesn't quite work. It's so in the, when he first sort of shows up in the elevator and he's there and there's like, it's sort of, sort of like strobing, which yeah. I think they did in the edit. I don't think that's how it was planned. Right. Uh, but it's a really sort of cool way to sort of shift him from, you know, regular to extra mm. crispy or whatever. Yeah, it's great. And I find him just as scary in both yeah. both aspects. So, top performance. Great work. Anything else you want to say, Sam, before I hit play on Switch Out of Mine? Please don't do that. <laughs> That's my last thing to say is I beg you not to play Switch Out of Mine. No, thanks for recommending this movie, man. I hope it held up in the way that you thought it might. Another, you know, another strong, strong movie for the for the mill. More grist for the mill, bud. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 weird that this film isn't talked about that much. Yeah. In a world where we've got loads of sort of boutique Blu-ray labels putting mm. stuff out, I think 88 Films put this out a couple of years ago. It's out there now and you can access it. I think in the sort of DVD times. Yeah. It was a bit harder to find. I think in a world where people obsess over like Warlock and movies like that, which for me are just yeah okay warlock exists like this is this is better in my opinion than dream warriors it's better than movies like warlock i don't know why but it evokes warlock to me in in some weird way Uh, i think it's it's pretty peak for its little subgenre and i think uh i think i would agree i don't really understand why it doesn't have a more devoted fan base all i can think of is it's stuff that i don't understand (laughs) yeah so sam if people wanted to support the podcast how could they do that Well, first of all, don't give me that if. Of course they want to. The first thing they can do is take those little thumbs, those little beautiful, fat, pink, chubby little thumbs and hit a star rating and maybe even engage them further in uh, giving us some kind of criticism. If we've said something that you think is great, put it in a review. If we've said something you think is absolutely 100% factually incorrect, (laughs) put that in a review too. Yeah, Uh, if you're you're the fan of Sweet Child of Mine... (laughs) Yeah. Then let us know. Tell us so how we can we, we can block you on all social media. No. Yeah. <laughs> Expose yourself. And then and then why not follow us on Instagram? Jamie put some amazing stuff on there. Uh you got a whole bunch of great video content coming up from when we were completely uh out of our minds recently. You can uh you can do lots with your thumbs is what I'm trying to say. And then why not yeah. use your use your gob in a similar way and tell all your buds, tell your friends, tell your family, put your money where your mouth is and sign up for the Patreon. Yeah, I'm challenging you. Give us money. Uh what else can they do? I think that's probably it, right? They can go outside, they can look at the sun for twenty minutes or so. Stare at the sun. <laughs> How does that help us? If you're a real fan You'll blind you would, yourself for us. Yeah. If you were a real fan of the podcast, you would take a ladle of gasoline, yep. pour it over yourself. And set yourself on set, fire. Set yourself on fire. And then, you know, die, to in, us, I guess. die in the 70s. <laughs> Do it for daddy. Die in the 70s. See ya. We'll see you next time on another great episode of you could say at the same time hopeless <laughs> but I can edit it so it's at the same time three two one final, final transmission, transmission. <laughs> <laughs> nailed it